This episode is sponsored by Hanover Square Press, publisher of Kennedy's Avenger by Dan Abrams and David Fisher. New York Times bestselling authors Abrams and Fisher bring to life the incredible story of the forgotten trial of Jack Ruby, one of America's most publicized and most surprising criminal trials in history. Visit danabramsbooks.com to order your copy today. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. If you live in the United States, there's a good chance you're taking part in the opening up of bars, restaurants, and other public spaces dedicated to socializing. This reentry can be exhilarating and overwhelming, but this respite from all of the loneliness, confusion, and fright of the past 14 months could easily turn into shutting out those feelings for good. Such mass forgetting could not only condemn us to repeat the failures that made COVID-19 so devastating, but could also ensure that things imperiled or lost during the pandemic don't return because there is someone else's job to fix. In the June issue, William Derushewitz, author of Death of the Artist, describes the immense toll the pandemic took on the arts and the ways in which it sharpened and revealed pre-existing social failures. The ways in which COVID highlighted these inequalities is not unlike what happened during the AIDS crisis, another pandemic that took an immense toll on the arts. Derashowitz was joined by Sarah Schulman, a writer, activist, and historian whose latest book, titled Let the Record Show, A Political History of Act Up New York, 1987-1993, excerpted in the June issue to discuss the similarities between these two global health crises and to consider how ACT UP might contain lessons for artists organizing against a society that values their products, but not their well-being. I began the conversation by asking the two authors to respond to each other's work. Well, I guess my question for Bill is about the future and how far away you think you think it is. Well, I, I actually try not to talk about the future because <laughs> I can't see it. And I think predictions are almost invariably wrong and are often kind of magical thinking. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. What I can say is that the pandemic clearly has jump-started uh, workers organizing. No question about it. I mean, all kinds of new organizations. I just heard about a new one like yesterday, the Workers' Arts Project, which I think it's a few months old. But And then also existing organizations, I think, are uh, ramping up their, their activity, getting a lot more energetic, a lot more determined, getting new members. And also, and in terms of the bigger, the bigger issues, which are not specific to the arts, like the dominance of the tech monopolies and just the inequality that's been growing in the last, you know, for 40 years. I can't say we've made progress in those things yet, but the conversation about it is clearly completely different than it was, you know, five years ago and even two years ago. Do you think it's affecting the way people understand themselves as artists? You know, I think, I mean, that's the hope. That's the hope because we want people to start to see themselves as workers in addition to artists and therefore as people, Mm -hmm. first of all, to kind of, foreground instead of conceal the fact that they're 
that they're economic actors as artists, and then also to develop a sense of solidarity with other ones, which, you know, the way people tend to think about art often inhibits. First of all, it's competitive. Mm -hmm. um, it's perceived to be meritocratic in some way. But also, I mean, people who've tried to organize artists as workers said to me, you know, to be an artist is to feel that you're special mm -hmm. and to be a worker is to be like everybody else. Mm. So it's obviously, it's, I mean, I can't quantify how much those attitudes are changing, but it seems like maybe for generational reasons, they are beginning to change. You know, with Sarah's book, of course, the question that most obviously occurs to me in this context is, you know, how, how, how do you see the continuities or differences between organizing today and organizing that you were part of with ACT UP in the 80s? Well, there's a lot of similarities. So ACT UP had 148 chapters, but they were not controlled in any central way. And when you look at the movement, for example, against police violence in the United States right now, you can see that although it has a national character, it's very, very localized. You know, every, every city has different leaders with different demands. They're using different strategies, even different milieu. Like in New York, for example, the gay pride march is an argument about whether or not to include the gay police or not. Like every social milieu is acting out its role in that larger movement. So that's very, very similar. And I think that that's a structure that works really well. One of the problems is it's really hard to get access to activist information. You know, I remember when I was younger, I read a book called Parting the Waters by Taylor Branch. That was this amazing analysis of strategies and tactics for the civil rights movement. And since then, it's been hard for me to find a book like that, that really broke everything down and helps people think strategically. So that, you know, I'm trying to offer that information and so are other people, but that's, that's hard to get. Yeah. Why does decentralization, the, the kind that you described, why is it so effective? It's not, it's the, it's the opposite. It's that it's locally centered. I mean, that there's a national profile for certain movements, right? Like Black Lives Matter, the Dreamers, Palestine Solidarity. But in each arena, they're acting independently. There's no leader. There's no president. There's no way of forcing people to conform. And one of the really great lessons of ACT UP is that it was not a consensus-based movement. You know, it was a radical democracy with big tent politics. It had one principle of unity, which was direct action to end the AIDS crisis, as opposed to social service provision. And that was it. And if you had an idea for direct action to end the AIDS crisis, and I thought it was a bad idea, I wouldn't try to stop you from doing it. I just wouldn't do it. And I would go organize my idea. And that is really healthy because you end up with this kind of simultaneity of response with lots of different action and lots of different levels happening at the same time, which is really what pushes the paradigm shift. Where, you know, the thing that doesn't work is trying to force everyone into one analysis or one strategy or even to use the same words. That I don't think has historically ever been successful. I wanted to follow up on something Bill had said because the unfolding of the AIDS crisis really fed on existing social failures. And that is very much true of COVID as well. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the differences we should keep in mind as we consider how to bring your work and the history of the AIDS crisis into conversation with the present day and specifically with the pandemic that we are even though no one is wearing masks, it's a go time, fun time summer again. 
we're still in it. <laughs> like you said, whenever there's a national cataclysm, it reveals the fissures of our society. And those are always about economic inequality and racism. You know, and COVID and AIDS both made those very, very apparent. But it's a, there's a, some huge differences. One is that COVID is a collective public experience that's discussed on television every night and everyone's talking to each other about it. AIDS was a private nightmare and our fight was to get it into the public. But the lives of the people that, who it affected were not considered important enough to be of public conversation. So that was extremely different. Uh, well, one of the things that we're seeing that's similar is this question of international solidarity. You know, how important it is to break down pharma's patents on vaccinations and make them available for free globally. What happened with AIDS drugs is pharma's greed really kept AIDS drugs away from entire nations who couldn't afford to pay the bills. Uh, so, you know, this is continually right. a problem because pharma is part of global capital. Exactly. Not to make a facile analogy, obviously the AIDS crisis and its impact on people is, is different from what artists have been going through. I, I was in New York in the 80s. I actually did some report. I was a public health reporter for a year and I did some mm. reporting about AIDS. I remember that time. But the one point of similarity that I think is important is that like Sarah said, people didn't care. The government didn't care about the people who were dying. They didn't know them. They didn't think they were important. This is very similar to to how people think about artists. Obviously, people have their artists that they adore, that they worship, that are really important to them, the sort of the stars, and maybe sometimes they're not stars. But as a group, there's this really kind of weird and really destructive animus against artists. And I quote a pair of statistics in the piece. I actually hadn't come across it at the time that my book came out last year, my book, The Death of the Artist, that this piece is a follow-up to. Mm -hmm. But it, it was a survey that the Urban Institute did in 2002, and it found that if you ask Americans whether they think the arts contribute a lot of value to society, 96% say yes. Hmm. If you ask them whether artists contribute a lot of value to society, only 27% say yes. But what do they mean when, when they say art? Well, I mean, that's how the question was posed, right? Mm. You know, I, I don't know beyond that, but I mean, I mean a lot of different things by art. And given the fact that 96% of people said yes, I suspect that they also have an expansive definition, mm -hmm. that it isn't just high art and, you know, orchestras and symphonies and museums. But it's that gap. I mean, people value healthcare, so they value doctors and nurses. They value education, so they value teachers. How is it that almost 100% value arts and barely a quarter value artists? It's because people don't make that connection. They, the, the stereotypes that people have about artists in general are that they're lazy, which is absurd, that they're self-indulgent, that they're not really working. You know, it's not really work, which is also absurd. And it's really important. And, you know, arts, act, arts activists have said this to me, and I think it's, it's really clear that it's going to be really important to change that perception if we're going to get people to care about the fact that the people who make the art they love are under enormous economic pressure and might not be able to continue to do it. But isn't there, I mean, I've been an artist all my life and I've been in a number of arts communities. Isn't there a significant range within the category of artists? I mean, all the behaviors that you just cataloged are present there. You mean laziness and self-indulgence? Well, some people, I mean, it's, it who depends on who, who. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, I mean, look, I mean, I'm sure they're lazy, self-indulgent people in any occupation. But right. what I, I imagine your experience showed you, but certainly my reporting showed me, is that that artists, I would say especially now, but I think always, any serious artist, anyone who's who's actually trying to sustain themselves, even in part through their art, has to work incredibly hard. And in fact, this is doubly true since the age of social media started, because now yeah. you can't just make your art. You also have to be marketing yourself all the time. So the people that I interviewed, I mean, I've known doctors, I've known academics work very hard as well. I've known many of those. The people as a group, the people that I talk to work harder than any other group I've ever come across. Right. And I think during the last Super Bowl, there was this commercial that just really hurt my heart in a way that's hard to describe where Dolly Parton came up with five to nine as an inversion of her song from nine to five, yeah. nine to five. The song, the movie, of course, is all about like, screw your boss, work sucks. And five to nine is like, hey, do your fun side hustle. Do it after you're done with your day uh -huh. job. Do what you really love. And that's just such a sick concept. <laughs> but it is also the reality for people who want to be creative and aren't independently wealthy. Yeah. And I actually... One of the people I interviewed for this piece, I didn't end up quoting her. She's a black visual artist in Boston. She, when she said that she worked five to nine, she meant, you know, 5 a.m. to 9 p.m. Yeah. yeah, That's more like the reality. Yeah, exactly. But actually, I want to go back to, I, I, just, I just used a naughty word, I would say, that's generated by Silicon Valley, which is creatives. Because... You, you use the word artist. I said the word creatives. And that's a term that has been sort of invented by Silicon Valley and other industries to kind of muddy the waters of what an artist is or who an artist is. I mean, the other day someone showed me a job opening at Deloitte, which is one of the big four auditing firms in the United States. And there's an opening for a storyteller slash writer. Oh, God. Would, this is true, who would help certain clients, uh, I don't know, do what, I couldn't decipher the weird corporate speak, but part of it would be like going around and creating narratives and telling stories about the brand and, and interviewing C-suite level uh, executives and all this, all this stuff. But the term creative or creatives, the creative class, you know, Sarah, you were kind of pushing back on the idea of like artists kind of blurring the line between these very a very broad category of different types of uh mm -hmm. practices creatives does it even more where it's like okay a pr executive might call themselves a creative a curator may call themselves a creative uh, a writer all these all these different terms kind of get mushed together and clearly it benefits people in business and silicon valley and other industries sort of reap the benefits of that. When I teach creative writing, I really try to encourage my students to not think of their artwork as a way to earn a living. That they have to get a job that they would enjoy in life. But if you are trying to be a writer and live off of it, then your writing is going to be controlled by the market. Yeah. And if you have a job and that you can support yourself by, you have a lot more freedom to create the work that you want. And most of my students are working class and poor. I teach in the City University of New York. 
So there's no, there's not this kind of trust fund, whatever, inherited wealth class. I think that that can be good advice for some people. I think a lot of the problem is that work doesn't allow you the time. Given the, given the way that work is now and the kinds of costs that people are bearing you know, for housing and for other things, it isn't necessarily possible to do that. I mean, I, again, I spoke with many artists and some of them have day jobs and some of them make a living. You know, it's not a day job. It's like lots of different gigs and some of them are more commercial and some of them are less commercial. I don't think it's automatically the case that if you make money from your work or even if you try to support yourself entirely from your work, that you're at the mercy of the market. I mean, the market can take many different forms. I think the problem now, though, is precisely that the market, you know, for various factors, because, you know, arts pay less, you know, music pays less and writing pays less and so forth, because costs are getting so much higher. It's harder and harder for artists to resist being completely captured by the market, you know, as opposed to making the work they want to make and then finding, gaining some modicum of income from it that may, again, it may support them in whole or in part. Now, because of the way the internet has reshaped the arts economy, that's getting harder and harder. And I, and I do worry that, that the arts are being more and more captured by the market. And the creative, I mean, to, you know, to, to address your question about creatives, which is this horrible term that started in the ad, advertising industry and it's kind of spread now like fungus throughout society. <laughs> First of all, it's just, I mean, it's often just kind of a glamorous term. I, I say like it's the sugar for the turd of gig work. It's like, it's a horrible job, <laughs> but you know, your boss is telling you that you're a creative, so that's supposed to make you feel better. But also, it, I mean, it, first of all, it blurs the line between artists, however you want to define them, and any, anything else that's called creative. And I think there are important distinctions there. But also, it makes all creative work, including the arts, it precisely rewrites it in the image of the market. Because we all understand that when we talk about creatives or creative industries or creative classes, we're talking about creativity in the market. So, you know, you write ad copy, you write a poem. What's the big, what's the difference? Right. Well, I think, I think the, you know, the tension here is really interesting between, you know, Sarah, the advice that you give your students and, you know, sometimes the reality of, because unless you, because of the professionalization, the expectation of, you know, a degree in a particular subject, previous experience, internship, you know, again, sort of a uh, privilege of people who either um, can afford to take a summer or several summers to amass a professional experience versus getting a, a minimum wage job. The tension between finding a job where you can kind of do the thing that you are good at or the, something you can live with versus finding something where you can subsist or, you know, a gig patching together income from gigs. It's really, you know, that is at the heart of what's happening to the economy. That's a, the heart of what's happening to social life in this country, right? Where you can't, the middle is, is going away. There really is no middle ground anymore. There's not a safe way to plan your future because increasingly there's more contract work. There's the expectation of you're answering emails at all hours. You're always on call, even if you are a part-time person. There are all these ways in which through technology or through expectations about education, et cetera, et cetera, the amount of free time someone has is getting eroded. And the options for just 
surviving are getting thinner and thinner. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, this is this is an overgeneralization, but I think when I think of what what is a fulfilling job look like, it's likely to be a, a job that kind of requires everything of you in terms of, you know, maybe many years of education, but certainly a commitment to the job. And as you say, you know, jobs are asking more and more. And if you go to the other end of the scale where it's, you know, minimum wage or low wage, but offers certain kinds of flexibility. Well, as you just said, you can't do that the way you used to be able to do that. Now that is also requiring all, all of your time, partly because, you know, you know, just in time scheduling or, you know, the way bosses kind of control your fate, and partly just because um, those wages just don't go as far as they used to when rents were cheap. Right, right. But also there's this, you know, big difference between art and entertainment. And they're, they're merged in people's minds. Uh, to me, you know, entertainment is telling people what they already know. And there's something very comforting about that. You come home from work, you turn on the TV, it's law and order. You already know what's going to happen and how it's going to unfold. And there's a comfort there. And you feel and good about and the police. <laughs> and you can make a lot of money creating that. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, when you're making art, which expands the way we understand, you're you're really at odds with the status quo in a certain way. And so compensation for that is very different because it has a different social role. So, Brian, I'm just interested in how you parse that. No, I agree with you. I always hesitate to draw a sharp line between art and entertainment, but I think your fundamental distinction is right. And, and, and the economic conclusions you draw from it are right, which is that entertainment is always going to be more, more lucrative because it's more appealing because people want to be told what they already believe. And, you know, historically, I think, with some exceptions, artists who tell us new truths, who tell us uncomfortable truths, who speak truth not to power but to their own audience, uh, tend to struggle more economically. But that's exactly to me why it's so important to have a, a robust and healthy arts economy. Because, because when the arts in general, when artists in general are being compensated more fairly, those people at the margins, more of them are dragged across the line of viability. So, okay, so they're not getting rich. They're not, maybe not even middle class, but they can sustain themselves. Whereas maybe when things are bad as they are now, they can't even sustain themselves and they have to drop out. I mean, another thing about saying just do it after work, I mean, aside from the fact that people you know, maybe they want to have children at some point, or maybe their energy starts to wane as they get older, is that I think like in any, like in anything, the more you do it, the better you get at it. And, you know, I think most of the, most of the, you know, good or great artists that, that, that I can think of, you know, there are exceptions, but I mean, they devoted themselves basically full time for years on end in order to make those kinds of breakthroughs that we value so much now. What about the work that really does the work of the culture, like the cutting edge, really ahead work of people who, whose contribution can't even be seen? You know, how do you monetize that? Well, I mean, I think that there are different answers for different people. And some people are, are just going to struggle and live, you know, and, and, not, and not make any money from the art for a long time. I think a lot of people, I mean, you may have different people in mind, different examples, but if we look back historically, a lot of great figures, they had private incomes, they had family money. I mean, that's obviously not a good model, but that's a reality. And then also, you know, for decades now, we've had nonprofit systems of support. How far they reach into the avant-garde, I think, is a question. But that's always been, for, for decades, right, basically since World War II, roughly, we built this large 
institutional apparatus to support work, specifically the kind of work that you're talking about, the kind of work that's not going to be supported or not initially supported by the market. And, and that also, I mean, that comes with its own inequalities because, you know, who's going to have access to that and what are they going to look like and so on and so forth. There are big problems with the nonprofit model, and I don't think that we should rely on any single model. And I also, I don't think that the market is necessarily uh, evil. I think the market has a role to play. I, I mean, among other things, when people bring their art to the market and people pay for it, we get to find out what people want instead of what rich people want or what, I don't know, academics who decide who to hire, painters or writers want. Well, I think that depends on the field, you know, because like if you're making a fine art object, for example, there is no public. There's the, there's the artist, there's the dealer, and there's the collector. And people may wander in and out of galleries and look at the work, but they don't participate financially. When you write a book, there's a mass audience. So you can actually write a book that the whole publishing industry wants to marginalize, and the book can do extremely well. Mm. Because people have a say in that whole dynamic relationship. You know, so it really depends on the art form. Yeah, absolutely. I, I meant I meant art forms in which it doesn't cost a lot of money to buy something. But that's writing, that's music, mm -hmm. and you know, a, a, some kinds of visual art, not high end, you know, unique object visual art, film and television. I think this is really valuable. The question of the market, but even Marx struggled with value. So I think I would like to turn it return to the the questions of the pandemic specifically because. Really, I think, and you both were there to a certain extent, the way in which AIDS reshaped the downtown art scene, it had a profound effect on who was making art, what kind of art was being made. And Sarah, in your 2012 memoir, The Gentrification of the Mind, the ongoing silence around the AIDS crisis and its astonishing erasure from cultural memory is detrimental. It's extremely concerning. So for those who are listening who are less familiar with the history or who perhaps weren't even alive at the time, could you point us to point us in some small way to, toward understanding the scale of that tragedy and what it did to the arts? You know, it's interesting because Fran Lebowitz says that AIDS not only killed the artists, but it also killed the audience. Mm. And that's a really, I think, astute comment. And let me just say that for people who don't know the basics, AIDS killed over 500,000 people in this country. It primarily affected gay men, IV drug users, sexual partners of IV drug users, and it was sexually transmitted by men to women or by men to men, but not by women to men. So it ended up that it lived in communities that had absolutely no social power. Now, today we think of white gay men as part of the white male privilege spectrum. But in the early 1980s, gay people were a profoundly oppressed minority in this country. Gay sex was illegal. There were sodomy laws that were not removed federally until 2003. Even in New York City, there was no uh, gay rights bill. So until 1986, you could be kicked out of an apartment, denied a job, or denied public accommodation like a restaurant or a hotel. 
Familial homophobia was a major social force and a major force of history. It forced people to have to leave their countries and their homes. And there was violence on the street against people who were openly gay on the street. So this is the, the group of people, one group of people who were primarily affected by the AIDS crisis. And poor people, women, Haitians who fled Haiti when Aristide was overthrown by a military coup. The U.S. did not want black immigrants, and so they tested Haitians who were arriving in the U.S., and when they tested positive, they put them in Guantanamo. That was the function of Guantanamo before it held Muslim political prisoners. So you had a huge, wide range of people, communities who were devastated by the disease, and the government cared not at all. And let me just remind people that AIDS is a terrible death. You really suffer. Because having AIDS means that you don't have an immune system. So you get what's called opportunistic infections. You can you have dementia, blindness, the nerves in your legs swell, you can't retain nutrition, there's wasting syndrome. People who died of AIDS died a terrible, terrible death. Now, in the, we do know that AIDS probably existed since the turn of the century and in the United States since the 1940s. But science only identified the pattern in 1981. So that's what we identify as the beginning, even though it's not the beginning. And in the first five years, 40,000 people died in this country and the government did absolutely nothing. The pharmaceutical companies, all they wanted to do was find a way to recirculate failed cancer drugs that they owned the patents for. So they were not doing the proper research. And it was in this chaos that in 1987, ACT UP was founded. And it was founded to be a direct action political group. And their agenda was based entirely on the experiences of people with AIDS. So that's the context in which it emerged. And um, in New York City, over almost 100,000 people have died of AIDS. And compare that to the 3,000 who died at 9-11. And look at how differently those deaths are treated. I mean, I'll say I was in high school when 9-11 happened. I'm dating myself. But the way, again, the way those deaths were publicly mourned, there was really nothing on the television for two weeks straight. There was nothing else. It was all about the victims of this attack versus we've had over 500,000 people in this country die because of COVID or COVID-related deaths. And yet mm -hmm. there's no sense of mourning. There's no national sense of mourning. There's a sense of you get to go out and play again. And that's really worrying to me. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, again, you know, your experiences with some of the worst of the AIDS crisis. The long-term consequences. Yeah. I end the book with, an, in, with a discussion with Cesar Carrasco, who was from the Latino Caucus of ACT UP. And he's now a psychiatric social worker. And he talks about the myth of resilience. You know, he talks about this first generation, the AIDS generation, and people who survived, and they've had a lot of problems, problems with crystal meth addiction, people seroconverting late in life, people whose lives have not made sense, because we've confused staying alive with survival, and they're not the same thing. And when you first come through an ordeal, whether it's an ordeal of a year and a half, it's an ordeal of 15 years whether it takes your grandparents, whether it takes all of your friends. When it's over, there's this shock of relief and 
a dissociation and people, I think you know, right now that's what people are in. But then there's a, there's a time when you, there's an accounting, an internal accounting. There's an emotional consequence to those events. And they, they do appear. And they, if they haven't appeared already, they will appear. And they will appear collectively. The problem is that America never faces this. You know, we, we still haven't come to terms with the Vietnam War. So we have a way of never facing the consequences of suffering. Yeah. And ACT UP was able to effectively target politicians and government agencies and big pharma uh, and the mass media. But as Bill's writing makes clear, the greatest enemy of the arts today, and I think a lot of organizing that didn't really exist in the 80s and 90s, is big tech. Mm -hmm. And speaking strategically, how might the challenges of organizing against big tech be different? What would it mean to organize against big tech? I mean, I'm thinking like, how, how can small groups organize against it? I mean, there are groups in the arts economy, especially musicians, who are absolutely doing that, who are, who, are trying, who are trying to talk about some of the things I talk about in the piece, some of the things I talk about in the book, piracy and free content and streaming rates, and what does that do to artists, and how do we hold the big tech platforms accountable? It's hard for me to see how that gets from there to large-scale action, but large-scale action is already happening. I mean, action at the center. So Congress has taken this up. The Supreme Court, for the first time in many years, issued, I think in 2019, a, a, a ruling that suggests that they may change their interpretation of antitrust law. The general public opinion about the contributions or detriments to society from big tech have really changed, I mean, almost 180 degrees in recent years. They, they used to be heroes, the tech companies and the tech CEOs. And now, you know, people are looking much more skeptically at these companies because of privacy issues, because of political interference. I would like them also to be thinking about free content. I want, you know, if this table is now being set and people are pulling up chairs, I want artists to have a, a seat at that table as well. Hmm. I was going to mention, you discussed the CASE Act. Yeah. And the potential of that. And I would say as someone with with a interest in film, copyright laws in this country are and have been for some time been dictated by the Walt Disney Corporation, which is now the largest media company that has ever existed in history because it's merged with its main competitors. And in a lot of cases, maybe not for writing, but certainly for film and for music, a lot of the time the rights holders are not the creators, but rather the middlemen. For instance, you cannot purchase or stream the original Stepford Wives. I mean, I'm just sort of pulling that out of the air because its rights are tied up with Bristol Myers Squibb, which is this healthcare company that just randomly took a foray into producing films in the 1970s. And so that film is just non-existent. So when I say the the ability to organize effectively, I mean, I'm not just talking about the government taking action, but the government listening to interests that are not corporate interests, that are coming from grassroots organizations, that are coming from actual artists. And, you know, maybe some of these organizations that you've mentioned, but also just sort of, I don't want to say like a caucus of artists, but something like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that that's a great 
a great vision. And as I said, there are some, there are groups specifically in music that are trying to work towards that. But I also want to complicate the picture you just laid out. Yes, the big sort of culture industry corporations have done terrible things when it comes to copyright and locking up works and shutting out the actual creators of, their, of those works. But there are different issues in copyright. There are those issues, and those involve the balance of power between culture industry corporations and creators, and those need to be dealt with. But there are also larger or other common interests between the labels, studios, and publishers, and musicians, writers, and filmmakers, and so forth. Mm -hmm. They all have a common enemy that involves a different set of copyright issues. And that common enemy is big tech. Because, you know, Disney wants all the money for their intellectual property. Big tech wants them to have no money at all, right? They want, they want to make content free so that they can make tens of billions of dollars a year, as they do now by counting the clicks and monetizing the resulting data. So some of the organizations that have been most responsible for whatever progress has been made, like the Case Act, Save Our Stages Act, they're not artists versus companies. They're artists plus companies. Creative Future is one that started in the film and television industry. It's a coalition of studios, movie theaters, and tens of thousands of individual creators. So I think, we have to be open to alliances of, of opportunity and not necessarily get stuck in an us versus them mindset when there are common interests that we can identify. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just with, again, I fall back on my film experience, but Amazon is technically an independent film producer right now. The Walt Disney Corporation owns its own streaming platform. You know, the... The, so I, I appreciate your point that it doesn't have to be an adversarial relationship, but I also sometimes I, I think we need to question the role of the greedy consumer who doesn't want to pay for anything because the consumer is paying for something. And what they're paying for is a high speed Internet connection, a computer all this electricity that they're burning through to charge their devices, a very expensive phone. Like people still are paying. And to ask people to pay for something on top of all this other stuff that I mentioned is sometimes too much. And so again, it's it's yet another way in which artists, you know, the money is being spent, but it's not going to the people who actually made the thing. Right. Well, that's exactly that's exactly the point. I mean, I agree with you. People are spending money. Um, the question is, who is the money going to? And would they change how they spent it? Or would they be willing to spend a little bit more if they understood that? I, I, but I don't want to put the burden on the consumer or, or at least more than a little bit of it. I think the issue is the platforms. Like I said, tens of billions of dollars being generated from free content. And I think government needs to step in and change the way that market is structured. So that a lot of that is flowing to the people who create the, the value that underlies it. Yeah. Sarah, do you have, again, in, in your experience as an activist, I mean, how would you envision a possible way to kind of... Well, it's part of the larger... Reorganize this. Yeah. I mean, I, if, if the restructuring of the, of the finances of the arts are linked to the larger restructuring of the U.S. economy and how people are paid... You know, if we have minimum incomes that are guaranteed for everybody, if we have free higher education, if people have an opportunity to cycle out of mindless jobs, you know, all of that, then I see funding the arts as part of that. 
My concern is that in bourgeois societies that um, that have you know great class inequality and racism, funded arts often become just cliques of mediocrity and middle brownness. So I you know to to have it be separate from what we need as a nation is concerning to me. But if it's integrated, then of course it's, I do understand and and I see its necessity. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I I, I say this very forcefully in the book, that, that the real reforms lie outside of the arts economy, and they're exactly what Sarah just said. The things that would make life more decent for you know everybody below the top 10% are the things that are going to help artists. But just to be clear, when I said that government needs to restructure the arts economy, I don't mean direct funding. I mean, you know, breaking up the monopolies, maybe mm-hmm. setting rates, you know, making it fairer. Yeah, everything needs to be much fairer. And the collective forgetting around something like AIDS, which took an enormous toll on society. If we remembered things like that better collectively, then these in- massive inequalities, they could be cut short. People could be more engaged if they were a little angry all the time instead of angry just some, <laughs> just part of the time. Well, if we had an equitable public education system yeah. and we didn't have class stratification in education, and arts education was an integral uh, and fronted part of everyone's education, then every person in America would have a different relationship to the arts. Yeah, and, and every person in America would have a, a more equal opportunity to enter the arts as creators. One of the many negative changes that's happened to the arts over, well, 30 or 40 years has been the way arts, you know, as we have these testing regimes in K through 12 yeah. that are all focused on math and reading, the arts have increasingly gotten cut out. So I believe it's a majority of people now, the majority of public school students don't have any arts at all in high school. Mm. I mean, obviously, there, you know, there are ways around it. You can get private lessons. Of course, that costs money. I mean, this, is, this, is a, this already means that the arts are starting to skew towards the wealthy, even before people you know, hit, hit uh, legal adulthood. Right. I mean, I see in my classes, I teach at the College of Staten Island, you know, every once in a while, I'll have a student who's really, really talented, right? but the kid was born into the wrong class. And so like the whole faculty will get together, we'll do everything we can to get that kid into a good MFA program. And this is rare that this happens. And then they get in and then if they have a horrible experience yeah, because they don't have the same social references that the other kids have, the professors don't mentor them mm-hmm. and they come out of it. They're not professionalized. You know, some of them continue. I have a student who, went to the new school and she's the only person from our program that ever got into the new school. And she came out with enormous debt and she has four kids and she sits in her car to write because she doesn't have any space. You know, they're committed to it, but even getting into the MFA program cannot dissolve the class difference. Yeah. I think that's a really important point to make, especially, you know, the idea that there is any hope of a Horatio Alger story in contemporary America. And it's, it's, it's going away to the extent that it ever existed at all. Again, the idea that we highlight the exceptional rather than the more common experiences, it, it doesn't help. It, it doesn't help anybody. And unfortunately, the Horatio Alger story is very, very common in the arts, right? Yes. You know, someone, right? You know, you, you always hear about the humble beginnings and they may be genuinely humble beginnings, but you, you're not hearing about the literally million other people from humble beginnings or even not so humble beginnings who weren't able to make it. 
Well, because the reward system in the arts is very separated from actual quality. Sometimes they overlap. Like sometimes a person can make something that's really excellent and it gets rewarded, but that's not why it's getting rewarded. It gets rewarded because it fits into the needs of the apparatus. So the apparatus needs to feel that it's forward thinking, then they'll reward somebody that brands them that way. I always say, you know, if you look at the New York Times, which is something that writers all have to live in relationship to. Yes. <laughs> you'll see that like the New York Times will have the most biased, worst coverage possible of Palestine. And then they will tell you what is the most notable book of the year. And if they choose your book, what does that really mean about you? You know, within the, within the framework of the larger politic of the corporation. So these are very, very, the, the reward system is extremely complex. Yeah. And I mean, also, I, I would mention in terms of discrepancies of opinion, the notion that it's like, well, we have to have a Brett Stevens here. And it's like, well, do you? Because if you have to have a Brett Stevens, you should also probably have a, a very far left person or a slightly further left person to give voice to those opinions instead of, you know, hewing close to what the Times readership who live on the Upper East Side, Upper West Side, uh, who can afford Sunday home delivery kind of want to hear. I mean, I don't know. I read the Times every day, but I don't know who the Times reader is right now. I know who they were when I was growing up. Oh, it's so scrambled. Yeah. Yeah. It's very scrambled that right now. Um, if they're trying to have it both ways. And because of the Internet, they can, mm -hmm. I would say, because you can just make so much content and uh, maybe not pay people as fairly as you should. You can kind of address every opinion. But... I don't know. I feel like we're getting too off topic. Well, not really, because we're talking about the larger context, right, of capital. And that's what, you know, that's really what's on the table here is is people trying to individuate and, and have an individual voice and have their needs met in a, in a society that's driven by profit and where the individual is not foregrounded. And that's the thing that unites both of our articles. And I, it's the context of the conversation. Fair enough. Bill, did you want to add to that at all? Sure. I mean, of course, I agree with what Sarah just said. I will say that the, the one good thing that the Internet, I mean, it's a broad range of good things that the Internet has done for the arts. It's created mechanisms that enable artists to appeal directly to the audience, to bypass the commercial gatekeepers, and therefore to build niche audiences for the kind of work they do. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's this, this is what's always touted about the internet, what the Sil Silicon Valley and its sort of useful idiots in the media and academia will always tell you not just about the arts, but about any kind of entrepreneurial venture that you can, you know, you can do it yourself and you can reach your audience. And that's true. And some of the people I interviewed for the book have done that and they've done it successfully. They're not getting rich. They're not even at a middle class level, but they're making enough so that they can make their work and they're you know, they're on Patreon, they're on Kickstarter. Of course, they use social media, especially Twitter, but often, you know, eight or nine other platforms to stay in constant contact with their audience. And it's working for them. And I interviewed an executive at Kickstarter. They're really able to support work that the commercial publishing industry was not interested in, often because of the biases of the people who work in the commercial publishing industry. It's just important to say what Silicon Valley doesn't say. The chances of actually succeeding at this are very small because literally millions of people are trying to do it. 
And even if you do succeed, it's an incredible amount of work. As I said much earlier in our conversation, you have to be a creator and you have to be an entrepreneur at the same time, two full-time jobs. You're working five to nine, a.m. to p.m. But it's true. And it's true that it's enabled people to circumvent the commercial culture industry. And that's a real thing. Absolutely. My final question would be to you, Sarah. Mm-hmm. You know, ACT UP had a lot of unique strengths, um, one of them being many members who were artists or had close ties with cultural institutions. And in that way, they were poised to create resonant responses to the crisis. So they had very creative protests. Uh, they documented their struggle, and this, such as you did, um, expressions of private and communal grief. One of the most striking act up protests that I remember was when people took the ashes of their loved ones and threw them on the lawn of the White House and said, stop killing us. I mean, that's just like, I don't know, I get very emotional. Think about that. Could you talk more about the role art practices played? in ACT UP? Well, there's a lot of reasons why ACT UP was so um, successful theatrically and visually. One is that gay people at the time were really alienated from mainstream American society. I mean, gay people were an oppressed minority. They stood outside. They experienced the, the weight of oppression. And so they could critique from the outside. And that's historically in the United States a place of great creativity. You know, this is before the banality of the rainbow flag and all of that, right? <laughs> this is outsider perspective. On top of that, you're in New York City. So you have some very driven people who are ambitious and competitive and um, a number of people who worked not only in the arts, but in advertising and graphic design and only worked in it, but were on the cutting edge of it because it was New York. So they understood this, the whole process of selling messages, you know, up to the minute and up to the minute way. And it's interesting, in my interview with Marlene McCarty, who was a member of the arts collective Grand Fury in ACT UP, she said that when ACT UP had simple messages, using advertising as the mode for our graphics and slogans and t-shirts was very, very successful. But once the politics of AIDS got more advanced and the messages became more complex, that, that aesthetic failed. Because what they learned is that advertising cannot convey complex ideas. It can only convey simplistic ideas. And that, you know, I think is just so poignant. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is cut and shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 